following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. All right, good morning. Find a way back to our seats. It's good to be with you. Glad you are enjoying fellowship. Encourage you to, to stick around afterward. Continue your conversations. Grab a cup of coffee. Go to lunch. Lots to lots to talk about. We're going to be in the Gospel of John this morning, chapter fourteen. John chapter fourteen. We're continuing our series in the Gospel of John. In the last several weeks, we picked up in chapter 12, and we saw how Jesus came into Jerusalem, and we're in what now is called the Farewell Discourse, Jesus' last words to his disciple before he's arrested and led to the cross before he dies and before he rises again. And so the second half of the book of John is all about the last week of Jesus' life. And so we're right in the middle of that last week now as he's been speaking with his disciples. Last week in uh, the beginning of chapter 14, we saw how Jesus comforted his disciples, whom he has just told he was about to leave, to depart, and that they could not go with him. And he comforts them with his word and tells them to trust and to believe in him and in God. And this week, we're going to pick up in chapter 15, where we left off last week, and really the source of our comfort that Jesus gives to his disciples. So John chapter 14, verses 15 through 31 is what we'll read together. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded, 
so that the world may know that I have love, that I love the Father. Rise and let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word and its many promises and uh, the, the teaching, Lord, we will receive, though from my own lips, God, we pray more truthfully from your lips. We acknowledge that this word is your word. The words Jesus spoke came from you. And he faithfully preaches and teaches all that you have given him to teach. So I pray that we, as listeners, would have ears to hear. Our hearts would be open to receive the truth of the word this morning that speaks to us. And we ask God that where our hearts are restless because we have set them on vain things, God, would you remind us that they will only find its rest in you. Where our minds are distracted from the busyness of the week, the things we have to do, all of the tasks that have piled up, give us, Lord, even supernaturally, an ability to focus, to receive the timeless, infallible word. We pray for those who are not here because they're sick or in distress. We pray for those who could not come because of travel or other circumstances. We pray that they would be encouraged and comforted by your word as your spirit ministers to them. And though they are not with us in body, they are in spirit. We pray for those who have wandered astray, that are not here because of sin or neglect. God, that again, in your spirit, you would comfort them by drawing them to yourself, that you would help them to understand that they are they are being led astray by the comforts of this world and that in you alone is the source of comfort that they seek. It would help us to shake loose the bonds of sin, slavery, and focus on your word this morning. God, we give these things to you now and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if the beginning of chapter 14, the major theme was belief, as we discovered last week in verses 1 through 14. Our passage this morning's main theme is that of love. You may have picked up on that as we read through it. Jesus reiterates constantly, if you love me, you will do this. He speaks of the love he has for the Father and the love the Father has for him and for us when we love Christ and obey his commandments. So love is very much the theme of our passage this morning, but that passage is not to be taken in isolation. Indeed, it's it's to be taken together as a unit with the rest of John's letter, and more immediately, it's to be taken as the other side of the coin, as it were, to last week's message when we saw that belief was the main theme or emphasis of Jesus' word. So in verse 1 of 14, when Jesus says to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me, he says almost immediately, Love. If you love me, in verse 15, you will keep my commandments. So belief, trust, faith, love, it all goes together. So here Jesus not only intends for his disciples then to believe in him or to trust him, 
that is to have genuine faith in Christ, both who he is as the Son of God and what he has come to do, but also to love him. Love, of course, is the highest of the Christian virtues. And Paul will tell us that the greatest of all the gifts God has given us, all of the virtues Christians may possess, love is the greatest. Love remains. Puritan Jonathan Edwards will say that heaven is a place of love. That the very nature of heaven itself is the love of God. So when we think about love, there's many places in the Bible we can turn to. We think of 1 Corinthians 13. We've already seen in our own passage how there's much to do when we love Christ faithfully. But what I want to spend time on this morning is a couple things. One, I want to begin with love and try to understand what it looks like and what it is from our passage. And then I want to spend a little bit more time, again, from this passage, understanding how we are to love how we are to love. And then lastly, we'll draw some comforts from this passage and from Jesus' word and spend some time meditating together on Jesus' picture and demonstration of love. So let's begin with love. First, what does it look like? Well, love for Jesus, from our text we know, is expressed, he says in verse 15, in the keeping of his word or his commandments. Those two words are synonymous. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, says. Again, he says in verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keep them, he it is who loves me. Verse 23, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come and make our home with him. You see, there's a clear correlation between loving Christ and obeying or keeping his commandments. So for Jesus, love for him is expressed in his disciples' life by obeying his commandments. So it means then that obedience to the commandments of Christ is not an option It is a requirement. The commandments of Christ come to us and they demand obedience from those who love him. How do we know who loves Christ? If we love one another and keep his commands. How do we know who does not love Christ? Those who do not keep his word. He says as much in verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my word. This word, of course, that comes to us, the commands are the commands, the teaching, the, the, the work laid out in Jesus' life that have come through Jesus from the Father. So what the Father has given Jesus to say, to teach, and to do, Jesus faithfully does, perfectly does, and it is that word, not simply his teaching, but all of his ministry laid out in his life, death, and resurrection, that we are to believe and to submit ourselves to. The keeping of his commandments is not simply the following of a rule, but a submission to a way of life. Jesus' command he gives to us, 
to love one another. So obedience to the commandments of Christ is a result, he says here, of our love for Christ himself. You can't keep his word without truly loving him. Now, we may follow the rules outwardly, externally. We may be able to check the box that says Christians do this. But judged by Scripture and judged by God, as we all will be, we are only found to have kept God's word if we love Christ. So there's a way for us to obey the Bible absent of love for Christ. But the obedience that counts in Jesus' eyes is the love, is the obedience that comes from love. The nature then of these conditional statements as they are, if you love me, you will obey. The nature of these conditional statements then means there's no room for anything else in the Christian life other than to obey Jesus' words. Friends, this seems pretty simple. It seems sort of Christianity 101. Jesus is Jesus. He's the Son of God. He's our Savior. The whole Christian faith is rightly built on Jesus, His Word, His works. And so it makes sense then that Christians, Jesus' disciples, would simply obey His Word. But you'd be surprised when you hold a magnifying glass up to any one of our lives how often we find ourselves out of step with the commands of Jesus. None of us here are any exception to that rule. Time and time again, we who know and have received the word of Christ step outside of it. Now, does this mean we do not love him? Does this mean we do not belong to him? Does this mean we are not his disciple one moment when we do not obey and we become again his disciples when we are obeying? But this kind of question can plague those who have a very weak conscience, who really feel the burden of obedience that's placed on them. If you're the kind of person who feels like they must constantly be performing and measuring up to the standard of others, and especially Jesus, you'll regularly look at the commands that he gives in all of the New Testament as not simply joy-filled expressions of how we love God together, but actually as burdens, as difficult things to achieve, as rules to obey, as rungs on a ladder to please and perform for the Lord. But beyond all of the rules, beyond the commands, and there's a time and a place to understand that the Bible tells us what to do and we should do it, it's that this must first come from love. Love for Jesus is first, then the keeping of commands. That's the way Jesus intends for his disciples to keep his word. And so there is no room for us then to look at his word, his commands, his teaching, as anything other than demanding obedience on us. And instead of feeling those that demand of obedience as a burden, what Christ is intending for us to see here is that if we love him, what is often considered a burden or a duty is actually a delight. It's a joy. 
So love is expressed in the keeping of his commands. Well, that's what it looks like. It looks like keeping his word. But what is this love? If keeping his commandments flows from our love for him, then that means that obeying Jesus is then different, actually different, than loving Jesus. First, we have to love Jesus, then we can faithfully obey his commands. Now, we may attempt and outwardly succeed, but again, from Jesus' perspective, we must love him before we can fully obey him. So, Jesus tells us that simply obeying him is not the same as loving him. Now, you might have grown up in church your whole life. Your parents brought you to church. You went to camp or VBS. You went to all of the functions. You sit nicely here in service. You've gone to the Sunday schools. You've done this. You know the word. You've memorized parts of it. Your parents have been faithful to try and teach you and catechize you. You've even learned some of the lingo and kind of sound and speak like a Christian. In fact, you even do some Christian things more or less on your own at this point. Outwardly, you feel like you're crushing it. But if we're honest with ourselves, you may find from time to time, not only are you not crushing it, but that you wonder if you really love Jesus at all. And this isn't simply routine. That you're not simply living under your parents' shadow, what they expect of you, or burdened by the pressure to obey God, though you have no real relationship with him, you want to please him, and so keeping the commandments that he had given you seems like the best way to start. Brothers and sisters, what Jesus is aiming for here, as he always does, is not external only, but internally to the heart of the matter. Loving him is not the same thing as keeping his commandments. Obeying Jesus does not equate to loving Jesus. The two only go together when there is love, and from love flows obedience. See, love is one thing, and obedience is another. Not many of us, I would presume, would love to spend our Saturday night doing our taxes. But sometimes we have to take our Saturday nights to do our taxes. Because if we don't, we'll go to jail. That's a duty. It's legally, we have to. Maybe some of us, the lucky enough of us, pay someone else to do it. But at the very least, we have some obligations. But given the choice to do that and to spend an evening with a friend, the choice would be obvious, which we would desire. See, one, you must do because of obligation. The other, there's no obligation. There's... Love. Love is one thing, and obedience is another. None of us love necessarily to pay our taxes. We simply obey. But we don't have to be coerced to spend time with family, loved ones, friends, serving others, because it is a delight, not a duty. You can see how love then flows into obedience. So what does it mean to love Jesus, then, in such a way that we are compelled to follow and obey him? If love looks like obeying Jesus, but it is the first and foremost foundational part of obeying Jesus, what does it look like, then, to love him? 
So we can make it one step into the equation. Obedience looks like loving. But now we're still left with the question, how do I love Jesus? What does it look like to love him? How do we do so in such a way that we are then compelled to obey Jesus out of that love? Perhaps you've found yourself hitting your head against the same wall over and over again. You want to obey Jesus, and you've traveled with me so far and understand that you can't really fully obey Jesus, please Jesus, honor Jesus, if you don't do it from a heart full of love for Jesus. But then you're wondering, do I really love him? My heart doesn't seem to overflow with praise. In the morning, I'm groggy. I'm frustrated at my children. I've got a lot of work to do, and I'm behind to catch up. And there's very little room sometimes for this overwhelming affection for Jesus to overflow into obedience. What does it mean then to love Jesus so that we're compelled to follow him and obey him and to love him in such a way that we then do what his commands demand of us? Again, what Jesus is getting at here is that to love him ultimately means delighting in him as our greatest treasure, as our deepest joy, as our redeemer. Remember the context Jesus here is speaking of. He's about to leave his disciples and he's going to suffer humiliation and death at the hands of those who would betray him and those who hate him. He goes to the cross, though, not because he feels obligated to do so, but because he delights in and has affection for those that he will soon suffer for. Hebrews tells us that he goes to the cross with joy. There's something in his view down the line that says that's worth it. For the joy set before him, he endures the cross, despises the shame. So Jesus has an affection for his people that God has given to him that is so great that he is compelled to suffer even to death that he would secure for them their greatest joy. When we think about love from that angle, we understand that when we look at Jesus with the same sort of lens, he calls us not simply to love out of obedience or love out of obligation because he's done something so great for us we simply just have to pay him back with our love. No, it means truly and really delighting in him for who he is. That because he has loved us, John says, we love. In his own epistle, 1 John. We love because we have first been loved by him. Or John in this gospel will tell us later on that Jesus chose us. We did not choose him. So the love demonstrated by Jesus in the choosing and the drawing to himself and the loving and the suffering for us is a picture of how then we turn and by God's grace love Christ. Not as repayment, but as delight and affection. Of course, what we're talking about is the beauty and the glory of Jesus as the Son of God. What does John tell us in chapter 1? That Jesus came into the world and his world did not receive him. They rejected him. But when we consider Jesus, he is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And we see in him the very word of truth and of glory. So what it looks like to love Jesus, before we get to the keeping his commandment part, 
means that there's a genuine affection for him and we delight in him as our greatest treasure. This is, of course, easier said than done because our hearts are fickle things. Maybe this morning you feel like you do love Jesus. You're here, you're saying, you're reading, you're taking it in, and you're saying amen in your head. And we're loving Jesus, but then lunch will come, and later dinner, and then bedtime, and then tomorrow most of you will have to go to work, and then it's a lot harder to get the love from here to here. What we really need to aim for then is to find a way to delight in Christ with our whole being. Or as Christ would say, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, it would seem that that's an easy thing to do. Flip on the love switch, love Jesus, love flows out, obedience, we're doing well. But this, friends, we come to understand, is actually impossible because of the human heart. The human heart struggles to love. Or actually, and more accurately, we should say that the heart struggles with loving the wrong things. Because it's not so much affection that we have a problem with, but loving and desiring that which we ought not. The converse is also true. We don't love that which we should. So the heart in every human being struggles with loving God. We do not and cannot love God because of the corruption of our human nature. We are born into this world in opposition to God. Even the cute, helpless babies have in their tiny breasts a heart that beats in rebellion to God. And when given the chance and the opportunity to sin, they will. There is no exception to that rule. We not simply struggle with love. We fail to love. We cannot love God. So what does Jesus do? He promises for us a helper. The word we see here in verse 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the word, the world cannot receive, because it either sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is the helper Jesus sends in order to enable unloving human hearts to love God. And more particularly, to treasure Christ. The word for helper in, in Greek, the, the Englishized version is paraclete. Maybe you've heard that word before. It's a difficult word to really translate. Helper kind of captures some of it, but it's a bit neutral. It's, it's more than helper, of course. It's more like an advocate. It's kind of like a counselor in the legal sense like an intercessor, like a witness, somebody who's there to point you to another. So this term here, paraclete, helper, really encompasses all of the ministry-wide fulfillments that 
the Holy Spirit, who is this helper he speaks of, does for Christians, points us in many ways to Jesus, helps us in our human frailty to love and be strengthened to love Jesus, without which and without whom we never could. So we need to learn how to love. Jesus says, to help you do this, I will send to you the Spirit. Now, what does the Holy Spirit have to do with love? What we need to learn from all of Scripture is that the Spirit is, in essence, the Spirit of the love of God for Himself, for Christ, and for others. What we come to understand about this complex and ultimately mysterious idea of what we've called the Trinity is that there's a relationship between the Father and the Son that is so perfect and so complete and so unified that they share in a perfect and pure and holy love that is so animated and is so complete that it stands as its own person within the Godhead. The Spirit, we can essentially say, is the love of God. That is, the Spirit is a person. We rightly recognize that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. He stands as His own. And we know this from all of the scriptures that teach us about the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. We see His titles there are very much personal attributes and roles. In fact, He's referred to as a person. He. He's called Helper or Counselor there in verse 16, but not simply that, another one. That is, Jesus says, I will send you something, someone like me. He's a person. He's called the teacher in verse 26. And Jesus himself says in verse 17 that he is virtually identified with him. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So Jesus recognized that the presence of God is felt and known through the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Not only is he a person, but we also understand he is God. He is divine. Though he stands unique as a person within the Godhead, he also shares the same divine essence as the Father and the Son. He is equally God with the Father and the Son. And though we see in Scripture he is given different roles and different attributes, he's called something different, we understand that he also is God. He is sovereign. We read about his sovereign choosing of the bestowing of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That he's able to sovereignly work. In fact, he also teaches and receives from the Spirit, or from the Father, what he teaches to those who has the Spirit. Not only is he a person, but he is also God, and as mentioned before, he is the spirit of the love the Father has for the Son. And the Son has for the Father. I think this is why Jesus says in verse 20 of our text here, that in that day, that is, I think of the resurrection, what's proven is that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you, and whoever has my commandments and keep them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. 
this mutual indwelling of the Son and the Father and the believers united to Christ by faith and having indwelling of the Holy Spirit sent to them by both the Son and the Father tells us that there is a shared love between these two members of the Godhead, the Father and the Son, which we are united to and entered into by faith when we become Christians. You can think of Paul's words in Romans chapter 5. Since you've been justified by faith, you have peace with God. And he tells us what this peace with God does. It gives to us perseverance. And ultimately, it helps us persevere in love. And he says that, that love that we receive as a result of our justification has been poured into our hearts by or through the Spirit. That's verse 5 of chapter 5 of the book of Romans. The love of God has been poured into your hearts through the Spirit. What this teaches us, of course, is that the Spirit of God's love, the third person of the Trinity, comes and comes into us, dwells within us, uniting us both to Christ and bringing us into the mystery and partakers of the divine Godhead through love and by faith. So we ask, what does the Spirit have to do with love? We, we must say, by definition, everything. If God is love and the Spirit is the Spirit of God, and He comes to manifest Christ in whom God dwells and in whom Jesus is one with the Father, then we must say that to love Christ means to have the Spirit. And without the Spirit, we would not love the Father nor the Son. So in this passage then, we see the sending of the Spirit accomplishes two primary objectives. The first objective that the Spirit comes to accomplish is to enable and equip believers to faithfully follow and love and obey Jesus. The second objective that the sitting of the Spirit accomplishes is that it provides the continual and efficacious ministry of Christ. So we have the enabling and equipping of believers to faithfully love, follow, and obey Jesus. And in the sending of the Spirit, the provision of the continual and efficacious ministry of Christ. Let's look at these in turn. First, the Spirit enables and equips believers to faithfully follow, love, and obey Jesus. We're enabled to do so by the Spirit in three ways. First, the Spirit enables us through regeneration. That is, because our heart is corrupted by sin, what is necessary then to love God with a pure heart is a new one. We must be made new, cleansed, purified. The images abound, but what needs to happen is our hearts, which Paul will say in Ephesians 2, are dead to sin and trespasses. We are under the sway of the enemy, and so our hearts must be regenerated. Dead hearts need to be made alive again, and they cannot make themselves, but must be resuscitated by another. So regeneration is what we call the renewal or the changing of our hearts from dead to sin to alive to God. The Spirit enters into our lives. God, who sovereignly and from eternity past chooses us to himself, has sent Christ to die and atone for our sins, and they together send the Spirit to work within you in such a way that your hard-heartedness is softened and then is made alive to God. 
That is the work of regeneration. He shows us and helps us understand that we are sinners, that there's a fundamental problem with each one of us, and unless that problem changes, we stand condemned before a holy God. All of our sins, whether big or small, indicts us damnably before a righteous God, and we stand under that condemnation. When we see that disparity between our standing before a righteous God and the holiness that he represents and has in himself, we know that there is only one way to be reconciled. We must be made right. The Spirit opens our eyes to that fact. The Spirit is sent by the Father to say, you need Christ. Look at your sin. Look at the righteousness of God. Do not presume that you can earn yourself salvation. Do not think that you can earn yourself a place in heaven by your merits or by accumulating wealth or by ignoring or running away from the truth. You need a new heart to be reconciled and right with God. That's what we call regeneration. He opens up our eyes to see the manifold problem of our sin. But he also opens our eyes to the solution. Not simply to the problem that we have in, in, in sin, but he opens our eyes to Christ and he leads us to receive by faith the good news of the gospel. That Jesus, as he will in just a few short chapters from where we are now in, in the gospel of John, will be led to the cross and on the cross he will suffer God's wrath again unrighteousness, your unrighteousness, my unrighteousness, this unrighteousness which those who have been regenerated understand they possess naturally in themselves is paid for by Christ on the cross. And so when the Holy Spirit begins to work and convert a person in their heart, he opens their eyes to see our sin and also the provision of Christ's death on the cross. So regeneration is the simple opening of our eyes to that truth. But secondly, the Spirit enables us to faithfully love and follow Jesus, not simply through regeneration, but also now through education. When we see that, We've repented of our sins and turned in faith to Christ and throw ourselves on the mercy of Jesus and his person, his work. We then are not left to ourselves, but in verse 26, we learn that we are taught by the spirit of truth in verse 17 and by the teacher who helps us understand that person, who helps us understand his work. In fact, he even draws to our mind his word so that we can be humbled by it and learn from it. Regeneration and education are enabled by the Spirit so that we can more faithfully follow, love, and obey Jesus. But not simply that. It's not simply he gives you the textbook, tells you to read it, and sends you on your way. He actually is in you that you may be renewed, Romans 12, day by day into the image of God, conformed from one degree of glory to the next into the image of Christ. In verse 27, we read the same that the work that he does enables us to sustain ourselves, or really he sustains us, through our difficulties and trials. Peace, he says, I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled, and do not let them be afraid. For you've heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. So rejoice in that. This is the sustaining work the Spirit does within us to form us into the image of Christ. 
grows us in holiness, grows us in sanctification, continues to allow us to become aware of our sins so that we might repent and turn to God's word and keep it, that we might be formed into his image, that we become more holy like our God is holy, that we may rejoice in the truth that we see in his word as he draws it to our, our mind or helps us understand it through the illumination of the text as we read it. This, by the way, is why we pray every Sunday before the sermon that the Spirit would open our minds and hearts to receive it because it is His work, which He does. And so the Spirit enables and equips believers to love, follow, and obey Jesus through regeneration, education, and formation. But secondly, I said not only that, but that the Spirit provides the continual and efficacious ministry of Christ to His disciples. Well, how does He do this? Well, I've got two ways he does this. First, look in verse 19. We see that he manifests the person of Jesus to his disciples. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live in me. In verse 21, whoever keeps my commandments, has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So the presence of Jesus, once he leaves physically, is felt, known, and experienced by the Spirit. It is the Spirit of Christ that dwells within us. And it is in that way we are physically drawn near to him. The Spirit is the manifestation of, of the person of Jesus, his love, his life, his person, so that we know we will see Christ even when he is in heaven because we have within us the spirit he has sent us. So friends, we feel from time to time, often we've drifted away from our intimacy with Jesus. We don't feel close to him, sometimes the language we use, but we don't understand if we're genuinely Christian, we can never get away from the spirit and presence of Christ, let alone the omnipresence of God. You think of Jonah, who's at the very bottom of the ocean in a whale's belly, who recognizes there is no height nor depth he can go to escape the presence of God. For those who are believers, we have the very presence of Christ within us. That's the second reason. Not only is it manifested to us, The Spirit indwells believers as the very presence of God. There is something unique about the Christian once he has been made new as a follower of Jesus. We may not understand the mechanics and fully understand what it means to be indwelt by God, the Spirit, but what Scripture tells us is that he is poured into our hearts, that he lives within us, that he is the one who teaches us, guides us, leads us, causes us to grow. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God as Christians. This may be one of the most amazing doctrines of all of Christianity, in my opinion, that the very Spirit of the living God really dwells within us. We can wrap our head around that God exists, what he's like. We can understand and approach his commandments in the Bible. But what we continually must be perplexed about is how 
God can dwell in the midst of his people and even within them. In this way, Christ in his ministry continues because he has not left us, it says, but that he is still with us. Let's draw some comforts from this passage before we close. I think there's two comforts primarily. Certainly there are others. First, from the words of Jesus, we are not orphaned. Look at verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. What comfort to those who are in fear of being abandoned by God. I will not leave you as orphans. This is one of the greatest promises of Jesus' ministry. Three years, he worked among the people. And there's not much I wouldn't give to be there. Sometimes we like to think that we would be really great Christians if we just knew Jesus. But you don't understand He's never left us. He sent his spirit. He is actually with us, and he will come to us. The spirit of Christ who dwells within us means that we are not orphans. It does not mean we are wards of the state simply taking care of problems until Jesus comes back. No, we've been adopted by God through Christ. We are not orphans. We have a father. We have siblings. We have a family in the household of God. And it's because Jesus came, died, rose, ascended, and sent the Spirit to us. Because of the Spirit, we are not orphaned. But we have dwelling within us God. This is the beautiful picture of verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home within him. That's the same word that he speaks about when he says he goes to the father to make many rooms, homes. That he prepares a dwelling place for us even while he dwells within us. Take comfort in the fact that you have not been estranged to God because of your sin any longer. You are not orphaned or cut off or unknown. You have been brought in graciously to the household of God by faith. He is your father. Christ is your brother. We are your siblings. This is your home. You are not left out or ignored. You are known, fully known by God as a son or a daughter. What comfort could draw from this when we are troubled in our hearts? when we are driven mad because our desire to perform never quite fills out. We look at our efforts, we know that they're in vain, our strivings have worn us out, and we wonder if we'll ever be good enough, not simply for one another or for those in our lives, but for God, who certainly knows the recesses of our hearts. But the promise here is that he has not left us as orphans. The Spirit has come to us as the very real mediating presence of Christ. The second comfort I want us to draw this morning is that we are not helpless as Christians. We do not have to sit on our hands and wait for things to fall into our laps. We've been given the ability to live for Christ. 
what the Spirit has done in regenerating us, in illuminating God's Word to us, in equipping us and forming us into the image of Christ means that we, in our, in our striving to love and obey Christ, actually can please Him. Hebrews 11.6 tells us, without faith it is impossible to please God. But with faith, and with faith in Christ who has sent the Spirit to us, we are able by our own works to please God. Not because somehow they are earning our salvation or pleasure, but because we are finally able to do which we could not do. Please Him. Love Him. We are not helpless. When we are distraught by what decision to make or how to best serve or love somebody that desperately needs us, we are not left without an answer. We can simply pray, turn to his word, look to a friend who has loved and served well in that area and say, how does this look? What does this do? We are not helpless, but the Spirit is our helper. Where have you failed to love Christ because you did not feel you were adequately equipped to do so? You must dispel that notion immediately. The Spirit is your helper. You can love and serve and please Christ if he is your treasure and if indeed the Spirit is in you. So we are not orphaned and we are not helpless. Let me end here. If we are to receive the helper that Jesus and the Father sends in order to fully love God and to be obedient to him, then we must also accept that which precedes that sending, namely, Jesus' own obedience to the Father. That we might be obedient to Christ, Jesus was first obedient to the Father, and obedient, as Philippians tells us, to death, even death on a cross. The obedience of Christ enables us to obey Christ. In fact, in order that we would not be alone, Jesus himself is deserted. And we then are brought into the household of faith. Not only is he betrayed by Judas, as we read in 13, and will be denied by Peter, but he will be abandoned by every one of him who, one of those who claim to follow him. And even the Father will pour out his wrath against sin on Christ. Have you considered why Jesus prays and sweats blood in the Garden of Gethsemane? We are not told he has ever received an answer. I think this is the beginning of the wrath of God poured out on Christ, who from eternity past has enjoyed fellowship with the Father. And now that fellowship begins to change. Not that he becomes less God, or that as the God-man, he becomes less unified to God. But as God begins to pour out his wrath, Christ begins to feel exactly what it means to be estranged. Not simply helpless and abandoned by earthly friends, but by God himself pouring out his wrath on him. But the abandonment of Christ serves to secure for us our inclusion into the family. His death, his obedient death, enables us to live a life of obedience. His abandonment provides the way of our adoption.
This is, at the end of the day, what the Holy Spirit is all about, pointing to Jesus. If the Spirit does not point us to Jesus, it is not the Spirit of God, but a spirit of falsehood. When we consider who the Spirit is, and there's many more places in Gospel of John where we will dive deeper into the Spirit, it is always all about Jesus. So this morning and this week as you go into the world and you look to love Christ, know that you must rely on the help the Spirit gives as he dwells within you, and that it is Christ himself who ministers to you through the Spirit that opens up your eyes to your sin, leads you to repentance and faith, forms you into his image, and enables you and compels you to love and serve. Let's pray. Father, there's many ways we know we've fallen short of this own passage and our love has not always manifested itself righteously. In fact, we've set our love on many things, on the becoming of those who call themselves Christians, who indeed have been redeemed by you. And so we, we pray, God, that you would enable us continually to see where we have strayed from the path of righteousness laid out in your word, where we have suppressed, ignored the Spirit's teaching and guiding us that we might fulfill our desires, our flesh, and where we are deceived or where we are ignorant of these things. God, just help bring that to mind through conversation, through prayer, uh, through meditation, and allow us to take steps of faith and repentance so that we may please you as we walk by faith in complete reliance upon the Spirit. Ultimately, Lord, we give thanks to Jesus who is for those who are in Christ our greatest treasure because he secured for us and enabled us what we could never have secured and enabled on our own. That is our salvation and our ability to love and serve you. So God, would you fill our hearts with gladness and gratitude for this and allow us to be spirit-filled, obedient, joyful people. We pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.